Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're speaking to Dr Manon Schweinfurth from the School of Psychology and Neuroscience. Manon investigates the evolutionary and psychological origins of cooperation. Manon has been working with the University Museums on an exhibition called What Makes Us Human, which looks into the shared traits between humans and other animals. Today's episode is called What Makes Us Human. Manon, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for coming along. Thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs> We're excited to have this conversation today. I think it's something that uh, a lot of our visitors will be very interested to hear about. Our first question for you today. What do you think makes us human? <laughs> well, that's a tricky question, to be honest, because... I think, I mean, maybe you can come up with some ideas of what makes us human, right? So I think you could easily come up with ideas like, well, we're the only species that can have a warm meal during flight, right? And that's also, that's true. It's true. We're the only one um, who can have a hot meal during flight. But does that really characterize us as a species? I mean, is that really what we... What, what what we use to define our species, right? So probably not. So when we think about it, there's probably our cognitive abilities that sets us apart, right? Because if we would start with, well, we have two hands, two feet, well, we share that with many other animals, right? And so the question is, is there something that sets us apart from all other animals? And I'm not too sure there is one. I think there are skills that we can do maybe better or differently to other animals, but there are also things that other animals can do better than we. I mean, we can't die for very long. We can't fly at all, right? So I think we need to be very careful what kind of skills it is. And so to answer your question, I don't really know. I've worked with animals for now quite a while. And whenever someone puts out a skill that only us humans can do, like tool use or whatever. Someone else found it in other animals. So I think we need to accept potentially we're a little bit less unique than we might want to think. So um, Manon, could, could you give us an example of one of one of these situations where we might have thought um, humans, we are the only species that, that does this thing and then research at, at some point has shown, actually, mm, that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were countless books about man, the tool maker, right? We thought we're the only ones who can make tools and use tools. And that was pretty established for a very long time. And then it was Jane Goodall going to the forest and observing chimpanzees. And what she realized was when chimpanzees hang out close to termite mounds, they will start, you know, breaking off little tweaks, uh, little branches. They will manufacture them in a way. They will pull off the leaves and then will stick it into the mound, wiggle it a little bit and wait until the termites bite into that little twig, pull it out and then basically fish for, for ants and termites. 
And that was an extraordinary observation. And she, she sent this observation via letters explaining what she saw to, um, to Licky, who then, you know, um, told the world about it. And that was the changing point where we realized we are not the only species being able to use and to make tools. And ever since, more animals have been found to make and use tools. And we'll see one of those examples actually in the exhibition with crows using tools. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? And, and one of the things I think that we look at in this exhibition, which is what makes us human, opening very soon at the Wardlaw Museum, is the idea that we differ in degree rather than in kind with other animals. So that, that's something I think, Manon, that you've, you've brought up quite a lot. How would you explain that to who are listening, that idea? Yeah, so I think whenever we came up with ideas, you know, where we are different, for instance, in tool use or in cooperation, we found this skill in one way or another, also in other animals. And I think when we're going back to tools, right, maybe, I mean, our tools are more sophisticated, admittedly, than the tools of chimpanzees or crows, right? They have little probing tools, for instance. There are also other tools that we know in the animal kingdom, but no one else has managed to invent a mobile phone or a space shuttle to leave Earth, right? So we differ more in degree than in kind means we are not the only ones using tools, but our tools might be a bit more sophisticated. And that applies also to other skills that we are exploring in the exhibition. May it be our form of cooperation. May it be cultural differences. May it be how well we understand the thoughts of others and so on. It'd be really interesting for, for a few minutes, Manon, to dig into a couple of the things you brought up there. So um, we take culture, for example. We would definitely think humans have an extensive culture. No other uh, species has come up with the Beatles. No other species has had Picasso. Um, where, how, and where do we find do we find culture in 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 other uh, in other species? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we when we think about what are cultural traits, right? Then cultural traits are basically different solutions to the same problem. Think about the way how um, how we eat. Some people eat with hands, some people eat with fork and knives, uh, others use chopsticks and so on. So these are cultural differences between different populations of humans. And there is no reason, chopsticks are not better than fork and knives, right? It's just cultural differences. And those are traditions that are transmitted between generations. And we see that actually in many different species as well. Um, chimpanzees use different ways in order to get access to food. Whales, for instance, sing differently in order to attract females, uh, depending on where they live in the ocean basins. So there are differences between different populations of animals. One is not better than the other, and they are socially transmitted. They are learned from and, and transmitted from one generation to the next one. Um, Manon, you're a, you're a rat expert. Um, how what traits do rats share with with humans that maybe our listeners wouldn't have expected? 
Yeah, so, I mean, rats have a very bad reputation, right, of being dirty and not nice with each other, right? But that's actually not at all the case. Rats are highly social animals who live in big groups and they're highly dependent on each other. And what my research has shown is that they are not just cooperative with anyone, they're only cooperative with nice rats. So those who have helped them in the past, these are the ones that they will help. And that's the principle of reciprocation. In other terms, I help you because you helped me in the past. And rats are extremely good at this. Rats of both sexes, both males and females, help each other according to reciprocity. They do this over even long time spans, so they can remember a cooperative act for at least eight days, potentially even longer. Um, they help each other in different commodities. So, for instance, they help each other by sharing food with each other. So. If they receive food by a partner, they will pay back by giving them food back. But they will also groom each other according to reciprocity. So if a partner groomed them in the past, they are more likely to groom them in the future. And so rats are very good in cooperating and do this according to reciprocity. And I, I think, Manon, you, you, you talked to us um about how uh, rats seem to place different value on some of these acts. So I, th I think you, you told us um, before we before we started recording that um, rats might swap food, for example, for a certain number of grooming sessions. Can you tell, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that was something that we were extremely excited when we found this. So when we go back to humans, right? So sometimes economics refer to us as homo reciprocans, not to replace homo sapiens, but to illustrate how important reciprocity is in all our exchanges. And very often when we exchange things with each other, there are different commodities. In hunter-gatherer societies, for instance, hunters go out, come back with meat and exchange this for other commodities, maybe food or childcare. And we see that in our modern societies as well. And rats do exactly the same thing. They share food for allo grooming and vice versa. One particular problem for commodity exchanges is that they differ in value. So in other words, maybe if someone shares with you a cookie that's much more uh, uh, valuable to you than if a person shared a small piece of carrot. And that's what our rats are doing too. They take into account the quality and quantity of what they receive. And in the case that, that we talked earlier about is they groom more for a food item like an oat flake. So the oat flake seems to be more valuable than one or two allo grooming acts. And so we could calculate this, that one oat flake is worth at least three grooming bouts for our ratties. <laughs> I think what would be really interesting to know, Manon, is so you're you're saying that these are the sorts of things that you observe when you're doing research with these with these lovely little ratties. Could you tell us a bit more about the process of actually how how you go about how you go about finding this stuff out? It's just fascinating. 
Yeah, and it's not a truly a question when you think about it, because we can't talk to them, obviously, right? So in order to find out how they cooperate, we give them little tasks, little puzzles. And so we present them the task and based on how they behave, we can draw conclusions about how they interact with each other. And more specifically, if I would take you to our lab, what you uh, would see is that they are housed in very spacious, big um, cages that are highly enriched because for the type of research that I'm doing, it's extremely important that they behave normally, right? It's not only the right thing to do, but it's just very important also for our research that our rats live a very happy life, right? And so they have a lot of space. They have obviously social partners. And when we test them, very often they know because we test them repeatedly with whom they are tested. So when we open the cage, take out one rat, the other rat usually knows, oh, it's my turn, and they run to the cage door, you know, and are ready to be picked up. And then we pick them up, we usually park them on our shoulders, it's just easier to carry around rats like this. And then we bring them to another room where we place them for the food exchange paradigm, for instance, into a cage that is divided into two chambers. And the rats can always see, smell and hear each other. And in front of this experimental cage, there is a movable platform that is connected to a stick. And if one rat decides to help the other rat, she can pull the stick. By pulling the stick, the whole platform moves into the experimental cage and provides food only to her partner. And then later on, we can swap the roles and can ask the previous recipient of help, hey, would you like to reciprocate that favor and they're happy to do so. And visitors can actually see this paradigm in our exhibition. So this is how we test our rats, whether they reciprocate help. I, I, I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. Um, one, one of the questions that springs to my mind is that you can test whether rats want to reciprocate in a, in a good way. Do we know um, whether or not a rat, if a rat has been nasty to another rat, does does that other rat do something nasty in return? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, we think it's probably linked because when kids start reciprocating shortly thereafter, they also start reciprocating nasty things, what we call revenge. It would be super cool to test this in rats, but I'm a bit reluctant doing this, to be honest, because I don't want to create a situation where a rat is angry with another rat, right? So I'm I'm, I'm more looking at the positive side of things. And so I study um, the positive sides, how rats help each other. Um, if there is an ethical way, you know, where rats are not, you know, angry with each other because a rat was mean to them, you know, maybe in the future we can test this. But at the moment, I can't think of a situation how I could test this without making rats angry on each other, which is something I just don't want to do, to be honest. One of the things you spoke about earlier, Manon, was the idea that there is this negative association with rats. And I'm sure that's the case with other animals as well, is that humans ascribe a certain negative quality to an animal. Do you think that this acts as a barrier for humans sort of protecting animals or advocating for animals? Absolutely. I mean, we see that people are more likely to um, to campaign for conservation 
topics for um, animals that look similar to us, like great apes, animals that we consider cute, like cats, dog puppies, cats, kittens, um, and animals to which we describe certain positive things, the majestic tiger, for instance, the cute panda that WWF uses, for instance, right? So, but I think it's extremely important to, to go back from that anthropocentric view and really think, what do the animals actually need? What do they understand about the world? What kind of cognitive and emotional skills do they have? And my research on rats, for instance, has repeatedly shown these are highly social animals who are emotional and cognitive beings. And I think it's really important in our interactions with rats, but also with other animals, right? And I think the easiest way to understand this is we know what kind of cognitive and emotional skills we have. Ever since the pandemic, we know how important social interactions are for us, right? We are obligate social beings. We also understand that we need cognitive enrichment to have a good quality of life. And by understanding that we're actually not that different to other animals, we did not fall from the moon. We share an evolutionary history with other animals. By understanding that we can take us also as a reference point, I hope that visitors will go away from this exhibition will say oh well rats are actually much more social than I thought and maybe they don't deserve that bad reputation because they're incredibly sweet animals who are sweet with each other emotional beings and I think we need to do better in our interactions with them may they be pet rats may they be lab rats or may they be feral rats in cities you mentioned their um, evolutionary history and this being a, a reason um, that we we share so many traits with with other animals. Could you I realize this is a big question, um, perhaps as briefly as possible, go into a bit about about why that is? How, how does evolutionary history result in us having um, the same traits shared between between different animals, in, including including humans? Yeah, so um, when we think back, um, many, many million years ago there were no humans like homo sapiens right but we had there were other um, um species living and um so the neanderthal and so on. we all know those different species and so once upon a time there was a species living that is the ancestor of homo sapiens a species we are and chimpanzees and bonobos for instance and so by comparing the skills of modern humans and our closest living relatives like chimpanzees and bonobos, we can make inferences what our last common ancestor could do, right? And so that is an example how we share an evolutionary history with chimpanzees and bonobos. And some of the skills are so ancient that we share this with many other species. Think about two arms and two legs. Many other mammals and even reptiles share this trait. So it is likely that two arms and two legs have evolved really early in evolutionary time scales. 
Does that answer your question? It, it does, but it brings me to another question, which is where, where those traits have developed independently. So a common ancestor we have with another animal doesn't have that trait. Why, why, might, why might those two species have, have that same trait? So what happens if, if there are two species that share a skill, but evolved it independently is that there was the same need for this skill. So think about the crows that you can see in the exhibition who are using tools. Their tool use has evolved independently to how we and chimpanzees use tools. But that is because there was a great need to use tools. So the crows use tools in order to get access to larvae and beetle that live in uh, trees. And the, uh, those larvae are extremely important for their nutrition. So the crows that showed tool use in the first instance um, were better able to survive and reproduce than crows that could not use tools. And so you see that sometimes we see similar traits like tool use in crows and tool use in humans, but they evolved independently, but for the same purpose in order to get access to food that you would otherwise not get access to. I think what's really interesting, Manon, is that there's, there's this idea then that given the right circumstance, animals might be able to do some of the some of the same things that humans can do so again it's this degree kind idea so for example could a crow fly to the moon well i don't know it's i i think nobody knows whether they you know if they would just have enough time whether they would also be able to to build space shuttles um if we think back to um the stone age for instance look at the very primitive kind of tools that humans used back then. Nobody would have guessed that based on hammers and ambers or whatever, someone would be able to build space shuttles to leave Earth. So who knows, maybe crows have the capacity to, if they just have enough time to build space shuttles. Um, Maybe there's even a need to leave Earth for crows and um, there is a big selection pressure on building those space shuttles. The crucial question is, however, do they have enough time? And um, I'm not sure they have. So New Caledonian crows live on those tropical islands and if sea levels rise due to the climate change, maybe those islands will be gone and they just don't have enough time to be able to develop complex skills in order to build space shuttles and leave Earth. That's a, a, a slightly sobering uh, consideration and, and brings us back to this um, to this issue that we were discussing earlier is if if our uh, if we are more like animals than we might have thought, what what impacts should that have on our relationship with them, particularly if what we're doing now can threaten some of these species like the like the like the new Caledonian crow. Um, what what do you hope people will do as a result of of thinking through these issues, thinking through the possibility that we're um, more like other animals than we might have thought, particularly in this context where where some of them are, are, are under threat? 
Yeah, so I hope that visitors will go away from this exhibition and will be amazed by how cool animals are. And that animals can do many things that we thought are uniquely human. So we did not fall from the moon. We are part of a global network. We can do some things maybe better than other animals, but it's not that we could pinpoint one thing that only humans can do. And I hope by understanding that we are part of a global network, that we are actually a little bit less unique in this world than we think, that that comes with an understanding of responsibility, that we need to deeply care and protect those animals. May they be our pets, may they be lab animals, may they be wild animals that we need to better understand their needs in order to protect them and 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 that there are i think more similar to us than we sometimes appreciate i think that's a really positive note to to begin wrapping up this conversation with because i think i think you're right manon i think people will be amazed when they visit this exhibition and see these these incredible animals doing some 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 stuff that they just couldn't have anticipated that they they did, which is which is wonderful. I think the other thing about this exhibition is that that we keep learning these unbelievable facts about what animals can do. Um, I think that my favourite is that dogs can read your mind. Dog owners would 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 always have known that intuitively. But it's 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 cold hard evidence. What about yourself, Matt? What what what's your favourite fact? Of oh, the there've been far too many, far too many. I I mean I loved learning that whales sing as loud as a as a as a passenger aeroplane taking off. But I I think also discovering that whales, these populations of whales have their own song, and then suddenly a, a cultural revolution that that changes the song. That that has that has amazed me. Um, Manon, you you probably knew all this stuff before we started before we started the exhibition. But what of all the things we discuss, what what do you think is the coolest animal fact? I think all of the facts are cool in themselves, right? Um, but I think I need to go back to the rats, right? Isn't it absolutely mind blowing that although they have such a bad reputation, that they are so social animals that they're so nice with each other and that they're not just generous generous with anyone right but that their decisions to cooperate are really fine-tuned on previous behaviors much like we help others so i think you know the rats surprise me although i work with them now for several years they still surprise me every single time and so i had to pick the rats here <laughs> I'm imagining the tune you've got a friend in me playing over the top of this just rat, rats and their friends it's delightful <laughs> well thank you so so much for coming to speak to us today Manon um, it's been a really fascinating conversation hopefully gives our visitors a little bit of a heads up as to what to expect at what makes us human thank you very much for having me <laughs> I really hope that visitors will be as amazed as we hope they will be after visiting What Makes Us Human. I think the note that Manon kind of ended on where, where maybe a crow could fly to the moon if only they had enough time, that's so impactful 
fingers crossed people take away that message. I mean, it does make you think about our relationship with, with the animal kingdom and what that should look like in the future. What Makes Us Human opens at the Wardlaw Museum on the 28th of May 2023 and it'll be running until the 17th of September. So you've got plenty of time to come down and find out all about these amazing animals. And if you want to find out more, check out the further reading in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. And you can join us next month when we'll be talking to Dr. Alice Koenig about art, war and visualising conflict. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the museums of the University of St Andrews. <laughs>